In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the third Sunday after Pentecost, and we are reading in uh, chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel. This is the end of chapter 9, and we see Jesus going through the region of Galilee and having compassion on the crowds. That's where we start this morning, and that's where the scriptures start as a whole. That is how salvation history starts, is with God's love and His compassion upon all people. The Lord reaches out to us in compassion and love to draw us to Him so that we can abide with Him, so that we can dwell with Him in paradise. This is God's plan. And to enact that plan and to set it into motion, we see Jesus here at the beginning of chapter 10 calling the 12 disciples. Uh, We had just read that Matthew was the last one who was gathered in the 12, and now he is uh, sending them out. And when we see now that he has gathered 12 and sent them out, our minds should immediately be thinking about why 12? And if we ask that question, why 12? We should immediately go back to the 12 uh, tribes of Israel, right? We should be thinking about those 12 tribes and what the Lord did in salvation history by calling those uh, children of Jacob out of Egypt. And so we turn now to Exodus chapter 19 to see what is the Lord's purpose with the nation of Israel? What is it that he's accomplishing? The Lord's desire is to uh, draw again all of creation to himself, to make all of creation holy. And he does this through the priests. And he says, I'm going to make Israel a nation of priests. So Israel is now a whole nation who is acting as a priesthood. What do priests do? Priests take something that is defiled and unclean and they make it clean, right? They sanctify it either with water or with the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrificial animal. They do it with prayer. They say, okay, Lord, here is something that was profane and dirty and it's going to be made clean and set apart for you. And while we might do that with objects or with individual people, the Lord's desire is to do that with all of creation. To make all of creation whole and clean. And so he sets apart this uh, nation, this kingdom of priests. And when he sets them apart then, he enters into a covenant contract relationship with them. Sometimes we see these contract relationships and we think that um, maybe they're, um, uh, they're, they're not quite making sense. But we can see in this contract that it makes perfect sense. What do we do with a contract? Let's say that you and I had a piece of property and we wanted to be able to preserve the property. We wanted to be able to preserve uh, the lines and make sure that everyone was able to um, keep what was theirs. We would say, look, I've purchased this property. I've uh, spent money on it and I've improved it. And and you as well have, have done your part. And so I'm willing to go and I'm willing to buy some bricks. I'm willing to buy some stone or to hire a contractor and I'm going to divide a line and I'm going to build a wall and then when I spend this money and I build a wall then the agreement is you'll keep your stuff on your side and I'll keep my stuff on my side right that's what we do that's the kind of contract that we write so the contract the terms of the contract always go back to the purpose right You keep your stuff on your side and I keep my stuff on my side. Now when we enter into a contract like that and somebody doesn't keep it, we often turn to punishment, to consequences, right? We want to force somebody to do it. We want to complain about it and oh, they're not keeping their side of the bargain. The Lord enters into a contract with the nation of Israel. 
Right? He says, this is what I've done. I've brought you out of slavery. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've made you into a nation. I've saved you. I've saved you for the purpose of making holy, of sanctifying. And your job, your part of the contract is to what? It is to obey my voice and keep my covenant. Obey my voice and keep my covenant. Right? So that is the, the terms of the contract that the Lord enters into with Israel. Spoiler alert. They don't keep their side of the contract. In case you were wondering, they don't even come close. Right? While we again would enter into punishment and the arguing and fighting, the Lord's answer is in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, I will fulfill the contract. I will provide for this contract. I will make it whole. And so he sends our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his son, who perfectly completes the terms of the contract. He does what? He obeys the voice of the Father, which he says over and over again, I say nothing that I did not receive from my Father, and he keeps the covenant. Right? He, he, he shows us how he loves the Father and he loves his neighbor so much so that he is willing to lay down his life for the whole world. Though the world doesn't deserve it, though the world is in sin. So he obeys the terms of the contract. Then he goes even further and he sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit enters into us and gives us the strength and the grace so that our hearts could be changed, so that we want to keep our terms of the contract. And that changes everything. Right? So that we would actually desire to keep the terms of the contract, desire to do the things of God, to obey His voice, and to keep the covenant. And this part of the story, while it's radical and it's extreme, if you can get past God becoming man so that man can become one with God, then this all seems fairly... um, put in place. But then he does something even more radical, which is he appoints disciples to do this work of salvation and transformation with him. And that's crazy. Because these people are just as broken and confused as we are. If you look at this list of people, we really should look at this list of 12 and say, really? These guys? Right? They're not the the highest educated. They're not the highest in society. They don't have any kind of social standing at all. And even worse than that, they're really messed up. They've got an old guy who just says whatever is on his mind, makes all kinds of promises, and says he's going to do all kinds of stuff, and then when the rubber meets the road, falls down on the job, does not do what he said he was going to do. There's a young guy who seems like he deserves everything, right? He wants everything good to come to him and to come to him easily. He's got friends in high places, right? He knows the high priest. He's able to get into the temple. He's able to get into the Sanhedrin. He asks Jesus, hey, me and my brother want to be first in your kingdom. Let us sit on the right hand. They've got a zealot. If you've ever been around a zealot, they're hard to live with, right? Matthew names himself Matthew. And reminds them that he's a tax collector. And this is what we see and what makes a gospel a gospel, right? The so-called Gnostic gospels written centuries later by people with their own agendas. They write all kinds of crazy stuff and they're always um, raising up 
the apostle, right? Making him seem like he's great. Matthew always shows, right, his low standing. The other gospel writers do the opposite. They call him Levi and leave out that he's a tax collector. Matthew points out his sin, right? So he enters himself as a tax collector and he puts himself down low on the list next to Thomas. Finally, we have a true, right, traitor in Judas. So look at this collection of people that he's called to do this ministry of salvation. Remember that apostle means learner. So these are people who are learning to do the will of God. And then he calls them apostles. And apostles are those who are sent to do the work of God. So they've learned how to do the work of God. They're learning and doing it. And then they're sent to do the work of God. Sent to accomplish the work of salvation. And St. Paul tells us how this process is going to happen. And again, in St. Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 5, we see that the first thing he starts with, again, is that God loved the world, right? God loved mankind so much so that he was willing to die for them while they were yet in their sins. Right? He says, most people won't die for anybody, right? Maybe they'll die for a really great person, but for a loser, who's going to do that? And he says, God died for us. He's willing to die for us while we're in our sins. Why? Out of love. It starts with God's love. And then he says, once he's died for us, and we recognize that, and we're willing to enter into this contract covenant with the Lord, then he would justify us. And he uses this word justify over and over again. And some people try to make this a really complex word. This is how complex it is. Look at your leaflets. On the left-hand side, it's justified. On the right-hand side, it's not. The left-hand side is justified. That means that every beginning is doing what the line before it did. That's how we're justified in Christ. We do what He did, the way that He did it. The right-hand side's doing its own thing. Right? That's individuality. That's the book of Joshua, right? Each one did what was right in their own eyes. That's the right-hand side. When we're justified, we do what God tells us to do the way that He told us to do it. And when we live a life of justification, St. Paul promises us something really wonderful, which is that we'll suffer for it. Isn't that exciting? We suffer for it. And he says that when we suffer... It will produce endurance. Now anybody that's ever suffered for something good knows that that's what we get. We do something hard and when we keep doing it, we start to build the muscles, right? We start to build the determination. We start to build the ability to do it. And at first it seems fantastically difficult, but the more that we do it, the more we realize, oh, I can do this and I can do it again and we build endurance, right? This is doing hard but good things. Right? So when we're willing to be justified, we're willing to follow the Lord, though people may punish us or criticize us or cast us out because they don't like the righteous lives we're living, or because we've got to give up things, we've got to make changes that are difficult, and that suffering. However it works out, if we endure and we keep doing it, then St. Paul says that produces character. And this is what we know. We know that when we've repeatedly done good things that are hard, we begin to build character, which means we can say, yes, it's hard, but I can do it. I can do it with God's help. And we're able to say, you can do it too. 
we begin to tell other people, yes, it's hard. Yes, it takes time. Yes, it takes the Holy Spirit. Yes, it takes grace. But you can do it too. You can live a life of righteousness. And that's what character is. Character is saying, I'm doing it. I'm not perfect. I'm doing it by God's strength. And here's how I've done it. And you can do it too. And that is giving people hope. Right? We have to have hope. And we give each other hope by saying, look... The Lord is here. He's provided grace. He's provided strength. He's with you. He's going to help you do these things. He's going to help you be justified. He's going to, he's going to give you His Holy Spirit. He's going to give you the opportunities to do all these things. And we're able to do all these things in hope that is desiring and yearning and thirsting for the good things of God because of His love. Because He first loved us. And when we enter into the world and we do those hard things because of God's love, we are a priesthood of all believers. I'm the priest here for about an hour and 20 minutes. I'm going to do three things the rest of you are not going to do for an hour and 20 minutes. I'm going to do the absolution after confession. I'm going to bless the bread and the wine so that it's Holy Communion, and then I'm going to bless the whole congregation at the end of the service. Everything else, we all do. And after this hour and 20 minutes, when we go into the parish hall, or when we go into the parking lot, or when we go to our homes or jobs, we all are priests. We all confess and give forgiveness of sins. We all say grace over our meals and thank God for the good things He's given us. And we all bless. This is our job. This is who we are called to be. A priesthood of all believers. Our job now, when we leave here, is to go into the parking lot and go to our places of business and go to the market to give blessing. To tell people about the goodness of God. To call them into right and holy lives. To pray for those people that we're going to come in contact with. Because we are a nation of priests. We are a priesthood of all believers. And we share with them the very beginning. Which is God so loved the world. That He would bring us all into the place of goodness. That He would bring us all into the place of covenant. And that He would share with us His eternal kingdom. May we be a priesthood of all believers and sanctify the world this day and forevermore through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.